Every play, every musical, begins with some writer putting words on a page. Hello, and welcome to Stagecraft, the Broadway radio podcast that talks to playwrights and musical book writers about the shows they've created. My name is Jan Simpson, and I'm happy to be back, kicking off the fall season with a conversation with Bess Wall, a playwright who specializes in works that challenge the traditional play structure, and who is probably best known for Small Mouse Sounds, her nearly wordless play that takes place at a silent retreat. This new theater season is shaping up to be a banner one for Wall. Her most recent play, Make Believe, is currently running at Second Stage through September 22nd, and in January she will make her Broadway debut at the Helen Hayes Theater with a marital play called Grand Horizons. Hello, Bess Wall. Welcome to Broadway Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, we start these conversations off with a little bit of a summary of uh, about what the plays we're, we're focusing on are about. So could you tell our listeners what Make Believe is about? Sure, yes. Um, I have to be careful not to give too much away because yes. there's a lot of secrets in the play, but um, it's really uh, about four children. It starts watching four children playing in a playroom, and quickly you get the sense that something is wrong and you're not sure what. There's a bit of mystery, and you watch these children uh, play make-believe, essentially, and enact things that they've uh, observed from their parents and play act in the way that a lot of kids uh, pretend and play family. And uh, about halfway through, the play takes a leap to uh, 32 years later, and an adult in the playroom, the same playroom, and you uh, start to learn how uh, what we witnessed in the um, childhood version of these characters played out in their adult lives. And what's changed and what hasn't, and who has made um, a good life for themselves, and, and, and who has really suffered because of what we saw in the first half. So, so it, it's a play really in two parts, um, but the two parts are in very deep conversation with each other. Where'd you get the idea for this play? You know, I never have really one one point of inspiration for any of my plays. They always come from a lot of different little seeds that are planted and, and, and small things that I sort of mull over and I have an inkling of something and then it, it sort of stays with me and, and sort of morphs into something more. And so I would say there are a lot of points of inspiration for this. Um, one was just, I'm always interested in uh, things that feel impossible. <laughs> so um, <laughs> for better or for worse. And um, so I, I really was interested in this idea of, you know, never work with children as being one of the sort of, whatever you sort of receive wisdom in the theater, don't put a kid in your play. And I thought, well, why, you know, and can I take that idea of never and sort of dive right into it? So I think it's a little bit of a contrarian in me. <laughs> so I first thought, oh, I want to do a play with children, but I don't want it to be funny in a sort of classic, cute little kid's way, although there's a lot of humor and make-believe. And I, I also don't want it, the kids to be some sort of foil for adult problems. I want the kids to be the primary, primary stuff. And I had a commission from Hartford Stage, and um, I called them and I said, you know, let's just do a play with only kids. <laughs> and I thought they would say, forget it, there's no way we want to do that. 
And instead, miraculously, they said, um, okay, let's try it. A series of workshops with kids where I um, brought in material, I worked with the children, and I sort of learned um, pretty quickly what uh, kids were capable of on stage, what, they, what was harder for them, and, and how to write to their strengths. I became interested in looking at whether I could construct a play where the kids were mostly pretending so that the child actors weren't to replicate naturalistic behavior, but they were sort of uh, enjoying play acting. Um, And I sort of created this world of the play where uh, you'd be watching kids pretend and gleaning from their pretend what might be happening in their real lives. And so that was sort of the structure that was exciting to me. And then as I worked with the kids, I became curious about what happens to these kids later in life And during one of the workshops at Hartford Stage, I went away for two days and just wrote the whole second half of the play, which showed the kids grown up. In two days? uh, Well, I mean, a a, a sort of what I call the vomit force draft, you know, a a version (laughs) that has been significantly worked on since then. But I want to go back to the structure then of how you put together the first part. Did you write something for the kids or did you almost let them improvise and then work off what they improvised or how did that work? I wrote a series of scenes, some Mm -hmm. of which are still in the play, um, that are sort of in a very, very uh, obscure sort of roundabout way told the story of these kids left alone in um, a playroom. And I knew I wanted it to be the 1980s because that was my own childhood. And I just watched them um, both do the, act out the scenes that I had written. And we did some improvisation. Uh, We played around. You know, I talked to them about, you know, what they thought they might do in a similar situation. Um, And uh, I learned a lot from just seeing how they worked and and understanding how long the uh, kids' scenes should be. Um, The the way the play is structured, the first half with the kids, is a bunch of very uh, quick little scenes. Mm -hmm. There's 13 scenes in all. And um, I quickly realized that it was helpful to sort of do shorter scenes with the kids where there was, you know, uh, sort of uh, one big sort of dramatic moment and things like that, learning how to rhythmically work with their strengths was a lot of what I was doing um, during those workshops. And were they the same kid that we see uh, at second stage, or were they different kids that you worked with? They were different. I mean, you, it was, you know, a few years ago that I started this at Hartford, uh, maybe about four four years ago. Um, so um, those kids were wonderful, but by the time we um, came around right. to doing the actual production, they were too big. <laughs> so, um, but that's sort of what's interesting about uh, working with them, you know, you were both doing the play and sort of participating in this moment in their lives that's um, very special and, and very unique. So it, it really was an honor to get to be with them and be part of their um, development as people. And, you know, we took that responsibility very seriously. So how difficult was it to find kids to do uh, these parts, the kids that we do see at second stage uh, because the scenes may be short, but these are complicated roles. Yeah, it's true. They really are. And we uh, had a 
very extensive audition process. We uh, saw a lot of kids, and we worked um, very hard to find kids who could pull off the acting, but also felt authentically young and real. You know, I wasn't interested in the sort of very polished, traditional uh, actor kid that, um, you know, felt like they were sort of eight years old going on 45 years old. I was really, (laughs) it was hard. And, um, you know, we were so lucky in that the four kids we found are absolutely incredible and um, blew us away in terms of what they were capable of and, and, and how professional they were. And, you know, they were really able to adjust very quickly. There was one day where I uh, reordered the scenes and adjusted a lot of things. We did it all in the afternoon and they went on stage and performed it that night. And they, it was really seamless. So um, if anything, you know, I feel like blown away by, by what um, small brains can handle. Um, they're very elastic and, and incredibly adept. I'm, I'm jealous, honestly. <laughs> now, you, you, you mentioned that the play was set in uh, the 1980s, which is um, when you grew up. And the parents, particularly the mothers of the children who grew up in the 1980s, were at least effect- affected by, even if they didn't directly participate in the second wave of feminism. And this is a mother who abandons her kids. And I'm just wondering, is there some tension between what was going on with women at that time and the effect on their kids that you were exploring? Absolutely. I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned that because That was a huge part of my own childhood. My mom worked at Ms. Magazine when I was a kid. So I was very uh, much growing up in the world of the second wave um, and interested in um, this uh, character, this offstage character um, of their mother, who we never see in the play. And we hear, we get tiny crumbs of her. We hear her um, outgoing message on the answering machine and... Mm -hmm. um, we hear um, one phone call that's unintelligible because she's so upset. So we know very little about her um, in any primary way, but we have a sense, or I have a sense as a playwright, that part of her story is that she's struggling with being a mother and also um, being um, an independent human being and, and what it means to be an emancipated woman. You're a mom. Um, has has yes. has writing the, the, the play affected your own style of parenting or interacting with your kids? Well, I think um, being a mom, uh, you know, as I said, I always have multiple sources of inspiration for any (laughs) play, and I think another source of inspiration for this, even though I would never in a million years abandon my children, (laughs) um, is, uh, you know, my own experience of motherhood, which is a huge theme of this play, you know, in, in the first half of the play, obviously. And then in the second half of the play, one of himself and is struggling with her own relationship with her daughter and how to navigate parenthood, not having been parented herself in a in an adequate or loving way. So I, I think I was thinking a lot about what it means to be a mom. And I was also honestly um, spending a lot of time just on the playground with my kids and watching hmm. kids interact. And I think all of that time where I was just sort of staring at the jungle gym watching my kids <laughs> play became research for this play because I became really interested in, in what kids are like when they're not uh, interacting with the 
song. Most of of the play uh, does take a part in, or at least the first half takes part in their make believe worlds, their fantasy worlds. But and I don't want to give anything away. We later learn that the real world has intruded on these kids in a really significant way. And I wonder why you made the decision to include that. Yeah, that um, was really, um, I wish I could say it was a conscious decision, but there was something sort of intuitive about it for me. It Hmm. really emerged as I started to explore the characters in the second half. Um, And then um, often something sort of happens intuitively when I'm writing and then I look back and I understand it later and I think the play is so much about pretend really when we're pretending and and when when we're real and that often we're pretending in the moments that seem real you know there's all these layers of faking and pretending in the play and what I was interested in was this idea that we've watched these kids play pretend in a very conscious way but that in the midst of that, there was one child who was actually pretending on a much deeper level that things that um, weren't happening weren't happening. You like to set yourself challenges um, when <laughs> when you when you write um, plays, and so uh, obviously working with kids in this one and working with silence in uh, small mouth sounds it does the idea come first to you the 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 concept and then you develop the story around it or does a story present itself to you and then you start thinking how can i do this differently than plays are normally done i think the idea normally comes first. With Small Mouth Sounds, I was interested in silence on stage, and then the characters sort of emerged from that. With Make Believe, I was curious mm-hmm. about kids, and then the, the story of these people sort of came out of that. And I'm always trying to find a way to disrupt the box of the mm. theater and the stage. Um, and so... Um, that's partly, I think, why there are a lot of offstage voices in my plays, whether the voice of the guru, who is always offstage in Small Mouth Sounds, or the answering machine in uh, Make Believe. I did a play called Continuity, set on a film set, and there were a lot of offstage walkie-talkie voices. And I'm always thinking, like, how can I push beyond the, the walls of the theater and expand the box to incorporate more of the world and to say... Um, actually what you're seeing is this small aperture beyond that that's unseen. Um, and the idea of thinking about that universe that's unseen for me relates to everything inside the characters that's unseen for the audience as well. Then what can you tell us about Grand Horizons, which will mark your Broadway debut uh, early next year? Mm-hmm. I, it's interesting because, I mean, I, in a way I've struggled with that play because it is, slightly more traditional than some of the other stuff I've written um, in that it takes place in a house and, you know, a kitchen and living room. And, you know, there, there are markers that feel um, more uh, sort of classic in terms of certain other plays that we've seen. But in that play, I've tried to sort of be disruptive 
with the content, and the content is um, this uh, elderly couple, 50 years, and uh, they uh, decide to get a divorce. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of about um, when do you have the right to start over, um, can love endure over time, and if so, what does that mean, and, and how do we balance our commitments to each other and to our families with our sort of longing for freedom. And so um, I've gone from children to, um, <laughs> right. you know, trying to elbow my way out of the box you know how can I look at sort of the beginning of life and the later years of life and sort of push the boundaries in each direction and, and, and see what's possible to represent on stage well I'm I'm looking forward to that one and I'm sure our listeners are looking for those who haven't seen it to uh, make believe as well so thank you for for writing it and for talking to us about it so much it's such a pleasure to talk to you I really appreciate it and thank you for joining us we hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts which you can find on broadwayradio.com